Friends, this is a reading from the book of Ecclesiasticus. Let us now praise famous men and our fathers in their generations. The Lord appointed to them great glory, his majesty from the beginning. There were those who ruled in their kingdoms, and they were renowned for their power, giving counsel by their understanding and proclaiming prophecies. Leaders of the people in their deliberations and understandings of learning for the people, wise in their words of instructions, those who composed musical tunes and set forth verses in writing, rich men furnished with resources, living peaceably in their habitations. All these were honored in their generation and were the glory of their times. There are some of them who have left a name so that men declare their praises, and there are some who have no memorial who have perished as though they had not lived. They have become as though they have not been born, and so have their children after them. But these were men of mercy, whose righteous deeds have not been forgotten. Their prosperity will remain with their descendants and their inheritance to their children's children. Their descendants shall stand by their covenants, their children also for their sake. Their posterity will continue forever, and their glory will not be blotted out. Their bodies were buried in peace, and their names lived into all generations. Here ends the readings. The psalm appointed for today is Psalm 149. We will read it uh, by uh, uh, a whole verse. Praise the Lord. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Let the congregation of the faithful praise him. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with tremble and harp. Let the faithful be joy, joyful with glory. Let them rejoice with their beds. To inflict vengeance on the nations and to rebuke the peoples. That they may execute judgments upon them, as it is written, this is the honor of all his servants. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, our second reading, the New Testament reading, is from Revelations. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in, for the, lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Seeing the mountains, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inhabit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. As I said earlier, today is All Saints Sunday. This is the time when we look forward and we look back. We look back on those who have gone before us. We look forward to the next generation of those in the church. And we ultimately look forward to what it will look like when all of the saints are gathered together. So, the first Sunday, October 31st is All Hallows or Halloween. Because November 1st is All Saints Day or All Hallows Day. November 2nd is All Souls Day, and the first Sunday after both of those is All Saints Sunday. And if you're confused, then you're in good company. So All Saints Day, typically, November 1st, is dedicated specifically to looking back at the, at the faithful pioneers and martyrs in the faith who've gone before us. All Souls Day, November 2nd, is typically dedicated toward looking back at everyone in the church who has gone before us. Oftentimes, those, who have, those in our congregation who have died in the previous year. And All Saints Sunday, because we don't, we don't do a full Eucharistic worship on November 1st and then another one on November 2nd. We kind of group those things together on All Saints Sunday. So this is a day when we remember the pioneers and martyrs who came before us. It's also a day to look at everyone who died in the knowledge and love of God, because and this is key to know. When you are a Christian, you are definitionally a saint. We'll get to that in a minute. And then finally, we look back on our family history. And as we think about this, as we kind of are going through the, 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 the family album, the scrapbook, it's a great time to think about expanding our family, and that's why we do baptism. So 
it all gets a little bit jumbled together. But when we think of All Saints Day, who are we supposed to think about? To answer that, let me, let me reflect for a minute on the word saint and how I think sometimes we misunderstand it. What is, what is a saint? Um, the background that I grew up in of, of evangelicalism, I just assumed it was something in the Russian, the, the, I'm sorry, the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, that it was some kind of super-Christian, you know, saint so-and-so, someone who's recognized with kind of heroic holiness and, and godliness, who God has seen fit to give an, an extra measure of merit to for their time here on earth. And there's actually rules in the Roman Catholic Church for what you have to do in order to be called saint so-and-so. Um, there has to be two verified miracles. There's a whole bunch of other things that have to happen in order for someone to be canonized as a saint. But I really think that does an injustice to the lives of everyday ordinary Christians and how we view ourselves and each other. So it's easy for us to think of a saint as being kind of a special class of Christian. Now, I will say, to contradict myself, there actually is some value in this, in thinking about people who've gone before us who were martyrs for the faith or were, who were heroic for the faith. There's some value in thinking about that, but only in as much as there is value in if you were going to go two and a half hours northeast of here to Washington, D.C., and walk around the, the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial, and you would see inside these marble buildings, there are these grand statues of these men, and you'll see their, some of their quotes or some of the things that they've written inscribed into the stone around them. And there's a sense of grandeur as we celebrate what those men did for our country. And maybe, maybe there's just as, as we see them, as we read what they've done and think about who they were, maybe there's a little bit of inspiration in us, a desire to better ourselves, to maybe imitate how they lived their lives. Same with All Saints Day. In, if we're going to think about saints as the ones who were canonized, who we think of as Saint so-and-so, we don't think about them because... They were a better class of Christian than we were. And we certainly don't think about them because we're going to pray for them or believe that they are in some way looking down on us right now and that if we, if we pray to St. Anthony, he'll help us find our car keys. That's not what this is. However, we can look to the people who came before us for inspiration in how we might live more godly lives. Let me give you an example. So my wife Elizabeth and I met at the, uh, in, in the theater program at Wheaton College in the early 90s. And the guy who ran the program at the time, the professor, Dr. James Young, one of the most godly men I've ever met, when, when anyone graduated from, from this theater program at Wheaton College, he would give them a little medal on a chain to wear around your neck. And it was a medal of St. Genesius of Rome. Genesius, who is seen as the patron saint of actors, he, was, he himself was an actor in third century Rome. He had converted to Christianity and many of the plays at that time were hostile to Christianity or made fun of it. And so one day he was on stage performing a play where his character was, was required to make fun of the sacrament of Christian baptism. And he said, I can't do this. He refused to do it. He said that he had come to believe in the Christian faith. He had come to put his faith in Jesus Christ and the sacraments of his church. And so he wasn't going to blaspheme against his Lord by acting in this play. The emperor at the time gave him a chance to recant. Genesius says, no, I'm not going to recant. And the emperor orders him beheaded. And he was. And so now, 
Genesius becomes a martyr for the faith. He becomes one of those white-robed martyrs, the army of white-robed martyrs that we hear about in Revelation. And over time, he has come to be seen as the patron saint of actors, not because if you pray to him, he's going to help you do a better job on the stage, but because he's an example that we can look to in our vocation. Elizabeth went on to become a professional actor because she was incredibly good at it. I went on to not because I was incredibly bad at it. But in, in the vocation that we have, we can look to people who came before us as examples of how, how, can, how can I be a better Christian plumber? How can I be a better Christian lawyer? How can I be a better Christian actor? And so that's one of the values of looking back at these people who are called saints. But Genesius was not imbued with any kind of supernatural powers at his death. He was a man like, like you and me. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with everything I just said. There's a decent chance that the story of Genesius is not true. We don't see any records of it until about the 500s, and he was alive in the 200s. And so there's at least some chance that this is all a myth that was made up after, after his death when they, saw his, when they saw his stone, his burial stone, and they made up a story about him. But that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world because these saints that we talk about are not superhuman beings. They are people just like you and me. So, it's helpful on All Saints Day to also reflect not just on Saint so-and-so, but it's also helpful to bring in All Souls Day, everyone who has died in the Christian faith, all of the great cloud of witnesses. Sometimes in the New Testament, at the beginning of the book, uh, the Apostle Paul will address saints in various cities in his writing. Um, he begins, you know, he might begin a letter with, to the saints at Ephesus, or to the saints in Philippi, or to all the saints in Corinth. And this one is particularly good, because if you've read the book of Corinthians, very few of the people in the church at Corinth were acting what we would think of as saintly. And yet, so is, when Paul addresses the saints, is he, is he just targeting this to the specific super holy, super Christians in each church? He's not. He's writing to the entire church. Because here's the thing. Saint, what we, what we say is saint, is an English word that comes from a Latin word, sanctus. If you look ahead in your worship guide one page, you'll see that every week during communion, we sing a song called the sanctus. It's called Sanctus because that's the first three words of the song. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. Sanctus means holy. It's the Latin word for holy. In, in Old Testament Hebrew, it was Kadosh, and in New Testament Greek, it's Hagios. It's holy, set apart. And so in New Testament, when Paul is addressing these church plants, he is saying to the holy ones in Ephesus, to the, the holy ones in Philippi or Corinth. Because, and it's so important that we know this, and I didn't know this for the longest time, the Bible says that when you are in Christ, when you are a follower of Christ, when you believe in Christ, you are a saint. You are holy. There's no category of super-Christian. Over and over again in the Gospels, we hear the disciples trying to work out some kind of pecking order with Jesus. Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, in, in Mark 10, James and John to Jesus, and they say, hey, can we ask you a little, little favor? Um, 
when you go into your glory, can we sit at your left hand and your right hand? That'd be great. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, you have no idea what you're asking. First of all, I, first of all there are no super-Christians in the church. But secondly, we are told over and over and over again by Jesus that it's the last who are going to be first. It's not those who strive and seek for rank. It's those who follow the Beatitudes. It's those who are humble and meek, those who mourn, those who pursue righteousness. These are the ones who are going to be first. So, when you are a Christian, you are a saint. You are holy. How did we become holy? Is this something that we did for ourselves? Um, was I a good little boy and then God decided to give me nice things? God himself makes us holy. This is all of God, and this is why we sing his praises. God made me holy through the blood of Jesus. God made you holy if you are a follower of Christ. God made you holy through the blood of Jesus. God not only took our sin and laid it on Christ, he actually takes Christ's righteousness and puts it upon us so that we receive the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. It is one of the greatest mysteries of God's grace to undeserving sinners. So, follower, if you're a follower of Christ, you are definitionally a saint. This is your identity. It means that you are set apart. You've been set apart by God. You are being set apart by God. And you will, at the last, finally be fully set apart by God. You were set apart by God, and he set you apart for himself, for his mission in his creation. And so, like I said, one of the things we do on All Saints Day is remember people who've died in the previous year. And in our funeral liturgy in the Anglican Church, it is said with a mixture of tears and joy. When someone dies, when someone dies in Christ and we have their funeral, we don't drape ourselves in black. The funeral color that we use is white. It's why the All Saints color, when we look back on a day at people who have died, is not black, it's white. The Apostle Paul reminds us in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that although as Christians we do grieve, because of course we do, because we're human, we do grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. So this time of All Saints Day is basically a, a prolonged version of the final prayer that we pray, pray every week in our prayers of the people. When we look back on those who have died in the Lord in thanksgiving, let us pray. This day is that day drawn out. Now, by God's grace, we have had no deaths in this parish in the last year. But we have definitely lost friends and loved ones. Last November, the Bantas lost Rob's mother, Regina, and I know that that loss still hurts. And I know that they are still grieving that loss, because of course they are. But on a day like All Saints Day, as we look back, we remember that although we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because even at the grave, we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. We find joy in the midst of sorrow, not because it makes us feel better, but because it's the truth, because we are anchored in the truth of the hope of the resurrection. When all of us will be raised to new life, in perfected bodies that can never die. And we will live in a renewed world with King Jesus. And so we know, we know as we grieve that we will see Regina again. 
And we know that we will see everyone else in our greater church family again. We know we will. Because all of us are saints. All of us are set apart by God. And all of us who follow Christ are told that we will be with him in the last day at the resurrection of the dead forever. So, that's the difference between treating heroic super-Christians as saints versus treating everyone as saints. We can definitely celebrate what God did in people's lives, and we can learn by their example. That is absolutely true. But for the overwhelming majority of us, our lives will not be celebrated several hundred years from now. Our actions will not reach national or global fame. Nobody in a thousand years is going to be writing a book about us. And yet, the life of each and every saint in Christ's church is critical to God. It's fundamentally important to God and what he is doing in his creation. So the more fully that we can live as saints, the more fully we can enter into the identity that God has given us. This is where it comes to our part, our response to all this. What does it mean? What does it mean to live as holy people, as set-apart people? It's in our gospel passage in Matthew. He opened his mouth and he taught them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Set-apart living, holiness living, means living in a way that should by definition, look radically countercultural to whatever culture you are in at any point in history at anywhere around the globe. It means sacrificing ourselves for others by putting others first and ourselves last. It means not taking everything that we can get. It, it realizes that our money and our time and even our very bodies are not our own, but that they belong to God for His glory and His mission. Because if, if, if secular science is to be believed, if, if we are just kind of a happy accident of evolution, that was, um, if, if we're just kind of a happy accident, then, then what does any of this matter? You know, we live a while, then we die, and so in the time that I'm alive, I might as well do what makes me happy, and I might as well get as much as I can for me because nothing is of any long-lasting cosmic significance at all. But we don't believe that to be true. Because if the Bible is true, if God is real, if, if God actually became a man named Jesus, then we should take his word seriously. And so when we do, we see that we end up living in this very weird kind of set-apart way. I said uh, a couple months ago at the beginning of our series on Ephesians that Paul gives two calls to the Ephesian church, and it's woven throughout the entire book. He calls them to unity and holiness. Unity and holiness. And I said at the time that that word, at least for me, maybe not you, but definitely for me, that word holiness can almost kind of have like a prissy or uptight connotation to it. It's more about things that you don't do than about things that you do. But holiness just means a life lived in pursuit of Christ. It means a life lived in pursuit of Christ because if you look at these beatitudes that he says in Matthew, he's talking about himself. Every single one of those things, he lived those out perfectly. And so as we strive to be a follower of Christ, that also means that we are an apprentice of Christ or an imitator of Christ. 
And so as we seek to follow him to become more fully who we are, who God has made us to be, we will, by definition, end up pursuing holiness. And in Revelation, in Revelation 7, we are treated to a picture of what it will look like when all of these set-apart people, when all of these followers of Christ, when all of the holy ones, all the saints, when they are all assembled. And I just want to read this again. Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that none could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And then it goes on to say that those who are before the Lamb of God serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They will not hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So as we look back over the previous year, we grieve those who have died in the Lord. But we do not grieve as those with no hope. Because as followers of Jesus, we know how this all ends. It ends with a feast around a table with Jesus, a feast that never ends, a worship service that goes on forever. It, God, it ends with God saying there's no need for crying anymore because everything sad has come untrue. And so as we remember those saints who have left their bodies and are now with the Lord, awaiting in the same way that we are, awaiting that bodily resurrection of the dead, we will be in full communion with one another forever. Let's also take this day to recommit ourselves as followers of Christ, to live as he has called us to live, as we reflect on the great cloud of witnesses who came before us. So, be joyful this week. Be joyful in the small ways that God shows you how he would like you to live in a weird, set-apart way for him. Be joyful in those moments when you realize that you could either do as the world does or you could do as Christ would do. And you've been given yet another opportunity to show that we are set apart living for a different king than the world is. Rejoice in those. We will see these people again in the joyful march to the throne room of God. We will be with the entire cloud of witnesses, everyone who has ever named the name of the Lord. We will see them around that feast table that never ends. And so even as we grieve loss, we look forward in hope. We can look ahead to that promised day. And that brings us to baptism. That's why we do baptism today. As we look backward in those who've come before us and we celebrate their faith, so also on days like this, we celebrate adding more to the number of the great cloud of witnesses. Now, baptism is, is a very interesting thing, and it's actually going to get its own sermon in about two months. So it's not going to be a whole separate sermon on this today, but some churches believe that we should only baptize people who've made a credible profession of faith, and there's, and there's validity to that. Some churches, like ours, believe that the faith of the parents will stand in for the child up until that child is old enough to confess the faith for his or herself. So, like I said, that's a much longer conversation for a different time. But 
what the church has historically believed about baptism, and this is important, what the church has historically believed about baptism is that it is entrance to membership in the church. You are being, this little girl, Lucy, today is going to become a member of Christ's visible church. It's why most churches put their baptismal font smack dab in front of the door to the point where you actually have to like skirt around it to get in because that's the entrance into, into God's people. That's the entrance into fellowship and it's the entrance into his presence through the waters of baptism where we die to our old life and are raised to new life in Jesus Christ. So, today we trust God that he keeps his promises to the children of believers where until she's old enough, the faith of her parents will stand in for her faith that we believe that she will someday claim for her own. So as we look backward in celebration from those who've come before us in the church, we look forward in joyful praise today, getting to add another number to, our, to the great cloud of witnesses. We get to add another number to that great multitude that none could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Let me pray.